Today's show is brought to you by IBM. By the end of this podcast, nearly 10,000 new malware variants will have launched. Now AI can help protect your data from threats wherever it lives with IBM Security. Let's put smart to work. Learn more at ibm.com slash smart. Today's show is brought to you by HBO. HBO's Silicon Valley is as timely as ever as Pied Piper founder Richard Hendricks pivots to build a decentralized internet free of ads and data tracking. But as the saying goes, new internet, new problems. Watch new episodes of Silicon Valley Sundays at 10 p.m. on HBO. I watch it every week. I am Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the winner of the Swisher Award for Excellence in Podcasting, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode for the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair, we've got some very big brains. I'm a little bit nervous. Uh, John Hennessy and Dave Patterson, the winners of the 2017 Turing Award, which is essentially the Nobel Prize for Computer Science. They can tell me if that's different. They won the award for developing RISC, a technology that revolutionized computer processing. John is also the former president of Stanford University. He's been on the stage at uh, All Things D many years ago. And the new chairman of Google's parent company, Alphabet, which is a big job. We have lots to talk about there, I guess. And Dave is a former professor of computer science at the University of California at Berkeley, and today is a distinguished engineer at Google also. John and Dave, welcome to Recode Decode. Thanks, Kara. So I, I do, I am nervous about interviewing you because usually I can make <laughs> jokes and I do know more than many of the people. We but will make jokes if you do. All right, okay. <laughs> so w- why don't we start by talking about your backgrounds? Because um, you asked when you got here if we have a really geek audience. We do, but we try to be discernible to lots of bigger, we're trying to go for a bigger audience. And I was joking with these two that I had uh, Anthony Scaramucci recently, which I can't believe they're in the same association with them and neither can I, but here we are. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your backgrounds. Why don't we start with you, Dave? Um, and then we'll talk about the book the groundbreaking book you wrote. I, I've run into a, today. I was at a cybersecurity thing, and everybody talked about your book um, from what twenty some years ago. But start with you, your background. Uh, I'm the first of my family graduated from college. Uh, got all my degrees at UCLA, and uh, spent all of my life at uh, UC Berkeley. So all I know is giant large public universities. Mm-hmm. And? And? <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I know you have more of a bio than that. Okay. I ended up in working in computer hardware. Mm-hmm. Uh, Berkeley wanted to expand computer hardware, and so they hired me and some other guys 40 years ago. Um, and why was that? Why did you decide to do that? Well, Berkeley was trying to, you know, growing its computer science department. They sure. were really great in what's called computer science theory and in programming languages, and they went to branch out into other areas. And mm-hmm. the first one was hardware, and then later they branched out into AI. And why did you? Why were you interested in that? What was some form? Well, years ago? why was I? You know, Berkeley's a great place. Uh, I wanted to try being a professor. I wanted to see. Uh, I, I was the oldest of my f- family. Uh, I have three younger brothers and sisters, and kind of we'd sit around the dining room table doing homework, and I'd end up teaching the material. So uh, I enjoyed teaching. And mm-hmm. so I wanted to see if I could both do teaching and research at a place like Berkeley. And why computer hardware? Well, that's a, actually an interesting question. Uh, kind of what I did for my dissertation was kind of half software and half hardware. So when I went on the interview market, there were places that considered me as a software person and places a hardware person. Berkeley wanted to get into hardware. So I said, okay, I'll work on that. And what, tell me what that was at the time when you were starting there. Well, uh, as John and I will probably say, uh, you know, the center of the computing universe for hardware was the East Coast. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, the, it was. The, two, the two main places were IBM in New York and uh, Digital Equipment Corporation, DEC, DEC mm-hmm. in Boston. And so when John and I wanted to go try and influence the computer industry, we had to get an airplane and fly right. <laughs> uh, yeah. to go there. I covered the decline of DEC just mm. as it was declining, but it was still a force for a long time when I first yeah, took it. Yeah, I'd say the most shocking thing in my technical career was when this tremendous engineering organization got bought by a third-rate PC clone company. Yeah, it what just, was it? What bought it? It's Compaq. 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 Compaq, that's right. Oh my yeah, God, and I was story. just like, that's not the way the world's supposed to work. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah, a lot of things got bought like that. John, talk about your background. So I grew up on the East Coast, got my college degrees there, had the good fortune to stumble on my PhD thesis, which involved uh, programming microprocessors. In those days, people can't think back that far, but microprocessors were used for laboratory control. Right. There were no personal computers, nothing like that. So I got involved in building a, a programming language to program microprocessors for real-time control applications. Turned into an interesting area. 
uh, started interviewing. Uh, Stanford was the 14th school I interviewed. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and so I interviewed everywhere from Wisconsin and mm-hmm. Iowa and Illinois all the way out. To- did you interview at Colorado State? I did <laughs> because Colorado State had a big group working on real-time control. Yeah. And uh-huh. so it happened to be a hot area. Uh-huh. So they were one of the first places yeah, I interviewed. I, I went there in Janie Irwin. All, all of us interviewed at the same time. So the uh-huh. good news is I, I interviewed at Stanford in March and right. we were having a drought. So the weather was beautiful. It was sunny. I flew back to the East Coast. It was sleeting at at JFK when we landed. I looked at my wife and said, if I get that job in California, and she said, we're going. (laughs) We're going, right, right, right. And and so I came. So I came and... um, Well, I I should tell you my my Berkeley story is (laughs) I'm there because of my wife. She grew up in Northern California Uh and was a kid and I met her in high school. Uh, And uh, I interviewed at a bunch of places and but he hadn't heard from Berkeley. And she's, you got to call Berkeley right. to find out. So she made me call as a graduate student, the chair of the department at right. Berkeley. Right, oh, good for your and, wife. Yeah, you know, and you know, as a grad student, it was just humiliating. And he said, okay, Dave, I got your thing here. Well, you're, uh, you're in the top 10, but not the top five, he said. Oh, wow. So as a grad student, I thought, oh, whew, that wasn't as bad as I thought. But it turns out he said that to anybody who called. Oh, perfect. <laughs> so you... <laughs> and, and, but he took up my resume and said, huh, you know, uh, I think Maybe they, they made, made an offer to somebody else who had turned them down. And he said, huh, this guy. And then he handed it to somebody who was coming to Southern California and we hit it off. And so I got a job there. See, but that's how if my wife goes. hadn't forced me to call, I would, wouldn't be there. I wouldn't be there. That's Colorado, Colorado State. Colorado yeah, Colorado State. State. <laughs> you would have been in Colorado State. You would have stopped in Colorado. So you decided to come out to Stanford. Yeah, which, so I came out to Stanford. I mean, people... Was people it, was it a big place to come at the time? Because now, obviously. Yeah, it was very strong. It was a, a yeah. top computer science department. But again, like Dave mentioned... It was on the East Coast. It was kind of more theory-oriented and right. a strong AI group as well. Um, the Valley was almost nothing. I mm-hmm. mean, there was very... There was, Intel was, was there, uh, 77. Yep. Intel was there, but they primarily made memory chips. That was their big business. It Mm -hmm. wasn't yet the microprocessor boom that would occur later. HP made laboratory computers, but there were essentially no major computer companies in the Valley at that time. Right. Uh, There were still lots of farms. And where the Googleplex is today was a family farm. Yes, I remember. Yeah, (laughs) that was a long time ago. But there were all kinds of groves and fruits. and Groves, there there was an orchard still on El Camino in Sunnyvale. Right, exactly. So coming here was was a risk for both of you, correct? Speaking of risk. uh, Yeah, you know, my my wife made this decision too because we had two kids and our siblings had houses and we didn't. And she said, well, look, if you go to Berkeley, can you change your mind and go to industry? And I said, yes. And she, she said, well, if we go to industry, can you go to Berkeley? And I said, no. So she said, okay, we'll be poor but proud. <laughs> <laughs> so you so you come here and you were both going into, since you were saying there was an industry here, there was Intel, there was a couple of companies, but nothing substantive. Nothing substantive. And, uh, you know, it was the early days, microprocessors were just growing up. They sure. were just beginning to... Uh, be thought of as computers. Um, and it, there were these development systems you could buy to, to develop hardware, to develop microprocessors, primarily for laboratory control still. Right, right. But the field was changing, and it was clear, I think, if you looked at it, that within a few years, you were going to be able to build a real computer on a single chip. Sure, yeah. And that was an interesting question, because I think it was the question that Dave and I both asked, which is, how should these computers be designed? Right. Should we keep copying mini computers, which is what they right. had been doing, or should we rethink how the computers uh, should be designed, given this fairly dramatic change in the underlying implementation right, technology? Right, absolutely. And explain mini computers. I, I, I get it. There was a large system. Big, 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 uh, basically big racks of hardware yeah, right. um, designed using a technique called bit slice. So you'd have a, one chip might implement four bits of right. a, an adder, another four bits of an adder. And they were, you know, they sold for... 100,000 to a right. million Deck, dollars, basically. Dex, key space, right? right? The VAX 11780, mm-hmm. their big machine that was a big mm-hmm. success. You know, it sold for 250000 to $500,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, maybe one-tenth as fast as the yep. slowest laptop you would buy. Right, right. So the concept was around, around this and not anything else. So where did you two meet then? You were here? At competing universities? Yeah, we were both, uh, in fact, the st- people ask where the story risk came from, mm-hmm. is once we hit upon the ideas of this different way to design computers, uh, which we can, is, is explainable, but... Uh, Go right we w- Well, okay, well, let's do that. Uh, so when software talks to hardware, there's a vocabulary, you talk to it. And the mini computer and mainframe eras, uh, the prevailing wisdom was that you want these 
very rich vocabularies, you know, $5 words, polysyllabic mm -hmm. words, and uh, that's how the right way to do it. And John and I's idea was, well, in this fast-changing microprocessors, let's do the opposite. Let's have a very small, very simple vocabulary, monosyllabic words. And uh, then the question was going to be, uh, how fast could we execute those words? How, how fast, you can think of it as reading the words. How fast could computers read those words? Well, mm -hmm. they have to read more words if they're simple. But the question was, how, how many more words would they have to read? And how fast could you read them? So, and it turned out uh, the risk, which was the reduced uh, vocabulary, is we had to read about 20% more words, but we could read them four times faster. Right. So. Right. It was like a factor of three win. So now talk about the implications of this. That you got together and you wrote a book together. You first you were making these innovations. So talk about that process of how you work together. Well, we started. We were we were running research groups, which people think okay, Berkeley and Stanford are competing. competing but the right. truth is, we were both on the same side of the line, and right. there were a lot of people who were naysayers who right. didn't believe our technology. What was so, the naysayer argument? The naysayer argument uh, varied from uh, academic, I think the, the one that was repeated most often was, this, these are academic projects. When you scale them up to be real computers, right. all the advantages that these papers have written about will go away. Right. Uh, we, we, were, we were cherry picking. We were just taking the easy part of the problem and, right. and exaggerating the benefits. And it couldn't right. be... It couldn't be it couldn't be transferred scale, to right. industry and scaled right. up to be a real right. computer. When you put it in virtual there, memory there, or you put it in floating point, all the advantages. There's also disappear. a philosophical argument that led to a lot of anger, which was uh, the belief of these bigger, richer vocabularies is the hardware would be quote unquote closer to the software. Ah. Uh, so maybe all the problems we were having with software, with projects failing and filled with bugs was because the hardware wasn't very good. Oh. And if we just had a richer vocabulary, a bigger, richer vocabulary, it's software would be easier. And then these two idiots come along and say the opposite of that. Right. And not right. only is that not gonna help, you're going the wrong way, you should right. go backwards. So this got people angry. Right. They thought well, these well, were dangerous, dangerous ideas that were right. gonna destroy the computing industry. Yeah. Why would it destroy them? Explain. Well, there, give, so there, was everything, there was everything varying from, you, you guys are just crazy, you're just academics, you don't know what you're doing, uh -huh. to if you start a company and develop this technology, you're gonna undermine the large computer companies. Which in, were selling these big systems. Big right? systems, right? And one of the reasons I think in the end that the technology was not um, adopted quickly was that it did um, pose a real threat to their existing That's exactly what it did. Yeah. Right. And we, we see this all the time, Kara. Uh, companies, rather than kind of endanger their own product line, right. will let a startup come along and right. wipe them out right. because right. they're just too nervous about the established well, I think that's the product line. The expression, and, um, someone, t I think it was Disney when they were getting into, into online stuff, he said, the CEO at the time, I think it was Bob Iger, said, we might as well eat our lunch ourselves. Yep. We're going to have our lunch eaten. We might as well eat it ourselves, which yep. was an interesting, it was an unusual attitude. Yeah, I, I say shoot yourself in the foot rather than have somebody shoot you in the yeah, gut. Yeah, right? yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Um, I don't like any More shooting. More graphic. But, yeah, uh, I don't like the shooting. I don't like the shooting. <laughs> so when you were doing, so you got together, so you were not competing, even though people think No, of these, we were kind of competing. We were competing you in were some ways. You were the but, Californians, though. You were essentially California yeah. where this was going. Yeah, yeah, but we, you know, John and I, I think are both kind of natural collaborators. And we could have, we could have decided my way is the right way, his is the wrong way. But fortunately, we were, we were young but wise enough that it's like, we need more, more people on our side. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of people out there who don't think this is a good thing to do. We, we, you know, we're, let's, uh, let's take the, we'll be on the same team. So. There was another issue involved in selling our story about this technology, mm -hmm. and that was we didn't really have a firm scientific quantitative explanation of right. why we could run programs so much faster. Mm -hmm. And that made it harder to convince people. We had data, but we couldn't, we couldn't give the scientific explanation of why this is true. And getting that, figuring out that explanation and getting that right, that was the beginning of really our book mm -hmm. effort. Uh, mm -hmm. Because we said, well, there's a much better way to design computers based right. on principles rather than on um, what, what Dave and I would call the supermarket textbook of computer architecture. Right. Here's one from the here's one from column A, here's one from column B, right. here's one from column C. No attempt to 
compare them or see how they see right. how the trade-offs what the trade-offs were. So you write this book together, is that right? And what mm-hmm. was that you were trying to change the idea of computer architecture of how uh, you would Well, we we were following the, the ideas in the book we followed in our work. Mm-hmm. And and we, you know, so we were taking, you know, and we put in the title of the book quantitative approach. We thought you should be able to run experiments before you build anything and compare two different ways to do it and get a number to say which one's better. And and that's how we were doing it. And we just got increasingly frustrated with the textbooks, which were still from like the supermarket catalog era of mm-hmm. describing architecture. So the actual triggering event was I could see that I was probably going to become chair of computer science in, vision, in Berkeley. And we were both so naive about administration that mm-hmm. I thought my life would be over. So, oh my God, my life is going to end. We have why? to write the book right now. Why, why was your, because <laughs> you had to run this big department? Yeah. And we oh. thought our research careers are over, all our time would go away. You mm-hmm. know, you know, kind of, this is a classic kind of a faculty right. attitude, right? So, is, so is you, you're useful. to get something done before right. you condemn yourself. Before you, to, right, exactly. <laughs> I wanted to. So talk about the impact of it, because it was an enormously impactful book for, I've talked to so many people, they, they talk, it, it's, it's like, I'm trying to think of the equivalent in Journalism would be the strunk and whites elements yeah. of style. Elements of style. Well, that's that's nice very generous. That's, <laughs> I, I, I would settle for that. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think we tried to capture this approach. I think what probably one of the things that surprised us is in the first year, we sold as many copies to practicing engineers as we did to classroom settings. Sure. And that was a real change. In fact, so Microsoft. Changed their attitude. Yeah, changed their attitude. Microsoft actually put it in their company store so you could get a copy at the same time you ordered a pen or a pad of paper, you could get mm-hmm. a copy of our book. Um, and that, that showed that there was really a different way of thinking about it. And I think, in, and over the years, uh, the book's been translated into more than a dozen languages and used around the world. And it's been, for us, it's been a remarkable opportunity to teach students um, all around the world. And fortunately for me, uh, John, despite having this little teeny job as president, uh, would every five years or so, work on the next edition. So I think he did three editions of the six editions while he was president. And had he said the entirely reasonable thing is, I've got a day job, I can't do this <laughs> You're anymore. running Stanford, oh that, oh that. Uh, right. That would have been the end of the book. All right, we're going to talk when we get back about developing risk, uh, this technology that, that revolutionized computer processing and still continues to. We're here with John Hennessy and Dave Patterson, at the winners of the 2017 Turing Award. We'll also explain what that is. We know who Alan Turing is. Well, we'll explain that anyway. Uh, when we get back. Today's show is brought to you by European Wax Center. They want to tell you about pink tax, an unfair tax on goods and services that are marketed to women. As a result, every year women pay more than $1,300 more than men for the exact same things. Women's basic clothing, like white t-shirts and jeans, cost more 40% of the time. Women's personal items, like deodorants and razors, cost more 56% of the time. European Wax Center wants all women to feel that they can be confident in their own skin and confident in demanding a level playing field. Go to axthepinktax.com. That's A-X with just an A-X and not an E at the end. One more time, that's axthepinktax.com to learn more and see how you can help raise awareness about this important issue that affects all women. I'd also like to tell you about one of our other podcasts, Recode Media with Peter Kafka. Peter, who'd you talk to this week? I talked to Emily Steele. She won a Pulitzer Prize or a Pulitzer Prize, depending on how you say it, for her great work she did last year on sexual harassment at Fox News and then later at Vice Media. She's great. We had a great conversation about how to report really difficult stories like this. And also, this will blow your mind, why she doesn't do that much reporting on Twitter. It's amazing. That's a really good conversation. You will like it a lot. Sounds great, Peter. You can find Recode Media on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're back with John Hennessy and Dave Patterson, the winners of the 2017 Turing Award. They're also some pretty smart professors, from what I can understand. And actually, I've been talking about their background in the book they wrote that was very um, impactful to how we people rethought uh, computer architecture, um, which was how old? 1990? 1990. So talk about developing risk, the technology that sort of revolutionized computer processing, and then we'll go where it is today. Well, it got started at Berkeley actually in a series of graduate courses. I had done a sabbatical at DEC Mm -hmm. where they were doing this conventional wisdom, as I mentioned earlier, about the really rich vocabularies. And it led to a bunch of bugs. uh, My sabbatical, I was trying to help them with the bugs that they had in their equipment. And so when I got back, 
you know, the microprocessor guys, as we said earlier, weren't really experts in computers. So they were just going to imitate what the big guys did. And so I wrote this paper that said, uh, okay, if the microprocessor people imitate the big guys, there's going to be a lot of bugs and we're going to have to figure out a way how to repair it. And the paper was rejected. And the <laughs> rejection was, this is a stupid way to design microprocessors. Well, that kind of, I kind of, if you're going to do it, it's going to have bugs and it is stupid. So there must be, there's a better way. There must be a better way. <laughs> right. So we started it out with a series of four graduate courses where we kind of investigated the ideas and uh, eventually built chips out of it, remarkably enough. So the graduate course in order to figure out what well, to do. Well, one of the things, yeah, one of the things I did when I, I, it's unusual for an assistant professor to take a sabbatical. Uh, it was fortunate, but unusual. And so it gave me a chance to think about what can you do well in the university and what not so well. And academics don't have real deadlines, mm -hmm. except for courses. Right. Courses right. are absolutely going to start and stop. So I thought, well, why don't I tie the research to the courses and then we'd have deadlines and sure. be able to make steady progress. And so that's why that was the trick or that was the idea that we were trying to do. And then in, I think in the first quarter or second quarter, John, uh, we were both funded by DARPA mm -hmm. uh, and that's where the risk name comes from. DARPA at that time funded high risk, high reward research. So we thought if we called it risk, they had to fund it. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, explain what it actually stands for, John. And then, so this is how you named it? That's they where the name to, came from. Yeah, yeah. 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 Right. reduced instruction set computer. I think the notion of trying to uh, target the instruction set for fast implementation, for efficient implementation really is probably the right mm -hmm. word, Kara, because I think today we care as much about energy as we care right. about, about execution speed. Um, and I think that was the key thing. Lots of things were changing. It was a time when a lot of the computer industry was changing. We were moving from uh, writing in assembly language. Remember, Unix was just coming of age, mm -hmm. the first operating system written in a high-level language as opposed to in assembly language. And, of course, that influenced our our thinking as well. And I began the same way Dave did with a brainstorming class of graduate students just to say... What should we do if yeah, we... Yeah, exactly. Clean slate. Clean slate. How Let's hard is rethink. that, though, when, you, when you, you know, you're taught in a certain... And in any discipline, in any academic, you have a, you have a class... No, we were young. Graduate we were young. students are completely open. Yeah. They mm -hmm. don't have all the inhibitions they, they, they we don't, might have. They don't have a history of failures, right? Mm -hmm. they, they don't know all the times it didn't work. Uh, and we were young and optimistic. You mm -hmm. know, we thought if our ideas were solid, why, why not, right? Mm -hmm. And so what happened with this? So you did these graduates programs coming up with greenfield approach or clean state, however you want to raise it. What were you, what were you going to, what did you think it would lead to as a new processing? I actually thought we would publish our papers. People would read them. The go, data ah, was pretty yes. good. They'd say, ah, we should do this. Uh -huh. <laughs> and that didn't happen. That didn't uh, happen. Well, for, one of the things that happened is because it was so controversial, there were a series of debates that John and I participated uh, from coast to coast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I think, I remember John saying at the time, by the third debate, I think people thought, okay, there's some ideas here. Maybe mm -hmm. because we, uh, John actually wrote the paper that had the scientific explanation. I think mm -hmm. maybe by then we had it, maybe not. No, I think even later. It was even later than that. Okay. Where so I go? think one of, the, one of the things that happened, yeah. for example, so is- So you started a debate. Digital Equipment Corporation actually had a West Coast right. lab at that. Mm -hmm. right. Some of those people had worked on our project and picked right. up the ideas. But they, in turn, couldn't get the East Coast to guys it. to accept the ideas. So in the end, what happened was a famous computer pioneer came to see me and said, you have Who's to start this? a company, Gordon Bell. Yeah, okay. One of the thought. early yeah. guys at DEC no, I know. came to me and said, you've got to start a company because otherwise these ideas are not going to get out there. Yeah. And, and I talked to a couple of colleagues and we decided to do it somewhat reluctantly. Of course, it wasn't, it wasn't right. something I had. Why reluctantly? You forget that everybody wasn't doing that. Though. Everybody wasn't doing it. That's the right. primary reason. Right. And, uh, you know, I knew that it was going to take a lot of time. I wasn't, you know, would I go back to the university? Would I stay at the company? I mean, I wasn't exactly uh, clear. Uh -huh. um, so that's how we got started. And talk about the impact then, because it was... You know, people didn't believe it at the beginning. I mean, right. just building on what Dave said about this contrarian viewpoint, I was on, on one panel and it was... a. Uh, my, an antagonist on the panel, uh, mm -hmm. an, an opposing viewpoint. And somebody said, well, you know, Hennessy just got a million dollars from the venture capitalist to go right. build this company. What should he do? And he, without blinking an eye, he says, 
take the money and go to South America. Oh, my God. <laughs> so uh, it turns out I, know, didn't, we, I didn't do that. Oddly uh, enough. It worked out. <laughs> we had uh, Michael Dell on the stage, and he said that about, I think, Apple. Like many years ago, like they should take the money and give it back to shareholders. Or oh, something. That's uh, one of those quotes you, you never take back. I mean, <laughs> Bill Gates had one like 64K is enough for anybody. Yeah, that's right. Everybody's got like one that. of those. There's yeah. a fun, funny this. Talk about the implications of once it became clear that this was the way things were going. It has kind of an interesting trajectory. Mm-hmm. Uh, for maybe 15 years, anybody who's risk had the fastest computer in the world. Right. But then, you know, the really good engineers at Intel figured out that they could actually translate their rich vocabulary into the simpler vocabulary in hardware. Right. And then any of the risk ideas uh, they could use. Right. And then uh, they had a lot more money, so they have bigger engineering teams and really good technology. So eventually, Intel kind of used the risk ideas against the rest of the risk companies and took over the marketplace in the PC era. Right. And, you know, and PCs did really well, but starting in 2007 with the iPhone, uh, which I guess is the beginning of the post-PC era, well, suddenly there's this place, as John said earlier, where they cared about efficiency. Right. Uh, of, and which is kind of similar to what we cared about early on. Which is the true life, true, the true concept that you were talking about. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. In the early days, it was transistors in Silicon area. Today, mm-hmm. it's still Silicon area because... Mm-hmm. If you look at Internet of Things, you've got computers all over the place that have to sell for a dollar or two. Right, right. So it really does matter how big the chip is right. uh, in that. Right. And so talk about the shift when mobile came. Because I would say the iPhone Mo- mobile, really- mobile made it. Mobile made right. it. Because right. then uh, the the ARM processor that you've heard of, well, the mm-hmm. R and ARM stands for risk. So it's mm-hmm. advanced risk machines. So that got increasingly popular in... Um, is part of my retirement. I went around and gave a lot of talks, and so I collected a bunch of data. But basically, there's probably this year there'll be 20 billion microprocessors sold, and 99% of those will be 99% are risk. Yeah, yeah, it'll be risk. So yeah. yeah, it's 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 everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> right yeah. Talk, I, I want to hear from you about the mobile. What what it? Well, I think the mobile the mobile really drove it because all of a sudden you cared both about what the processor cost, but you also cared a lot about energy efficiency. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's one thing the so-called CISC approach, right, that was the traditional approach, has never been able to close the gap. So it consumed more energy. Didn't matter so much on a on a desktop machine. Right, Maybe you need a fan, yeah. you know, instead of not having one. But it wasn't a big differentiator. But in the mobile space, power is everything. You really do have to worry about energy. Uh, and as we move into this so forces, next generation, it forces it. Yeah, forces efficiency. Yeah. Forces it. You know, and I think as we move into this next era, where we're talking about uh, devices that may have uh, processors in them that may last for ten years mm-hmm. with a single battery. Um, power is going to matter a lot. And yeah, I want to get into that in our next section. But important. so you two created this, and are you billionaires? Or is this- <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have a salary. Yeah, <laughs> it's very yeah. For my future. Yeah. John, John's invested better and, uh, uh, than I have. Well, I, one of your ex-students who has a lot of money has wondered why that you did you take advantage of that? Do you think of these? Me? Yeah. <laughs> oh, this is Dave. Uh, <laughs> I. Pretty much stayed a professor. I mm-hmm. I, I believed. Why did you move into industry? I had you know I think when I was young I had this uh, strong belief in the public university uh, teaching. You know we were fulfilling the American dream, and I I just had this little speech I gave when somebody asked about a startup is I'm I'm going to be a professor. Mm-hmm. I, you know it wouldn't have been that bad if I'd taken a couple of years off and done a couple. Yeah, yeah but it, when it, I was young <laughs> I was kind of like strong willed and. I'm an academic, and that's mm-hmm. what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm several companies in. I yeah. mean, I starting with Jim Clark with with Silicon Graphics yes. that I was a consultant to, and then MIPS. Right. Uh, then I started uh, a company, MIPS. Atheros, that built the early Wi-Fi mm-hmm. uh, chips. Which one um, was it? Atheros. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember yeah. That. So they built Wi-Fi chips early yeah. on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've done the entrepreneurship thing a few times, and yeah. And then I joined the Google board in 2004. I understand that's not a voluntary position. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a good move. Yeah. yeah. Although that was later. That was later. Yeah, it's just before they went public, about six months before right, they went public. Right, that's right. That's right. I met them in 98. Yeah. So, so I met them at Stanford. When, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's right. They were there, of course. Yeah. Um, so talk a little bit about that, where you, these companies, but since you both are academics, because you did stay in academia, really, than, than anything else. Came back to what I loved. When we're thinking about students, one of the, people that was taught by you, when you think about how you train these students today, um, because one of your things was to get these, you know, you did 
risk based on a class, essentially. Um, talking about how students should be trained today, and I, when we, in our next section, I want to get on where things are going and how, who's designing these systems and how they should be designed. Talk about training of the students. Uh, well, it's a fantastic time to be a student <laughs> in yeah. computer science. You have amazing computers at your fingertips. Uh, on uh, particular things that John and I do, it's much easier to build hardware than it was uh, earlier. Um, there's these things called field programmable gateways, which are kind of programmable hardware. So you can prototype your ideas and change them every day and connect them to the internet. And it's kind of a, it's a real computer, but modifiable. So mm -hmm. it's it's uh, so I think students getting their hands dirty. Well, you know, when I I got into computer science because I was a math major at UCLA, and a math class was canceled, and I took this software class, and I was hooked. Right? Math class was just canceled. Yeah, it was, the class I needed was canceled, and right. there was this two-unit computer class. I, I hadn't thought about computers at all. You hadn't done computers before? No, that? I never thought about it. Don't know why, uh, but uh, I took it, and I loved it. You know, the, uh, the, uh, your, the ideas in your mind come alive in that screen, and that was just exciting. Mm -hmm. And so I think we want to give students that opportunity. You know, programming can do that. Building hardware can do that. But building things and see your ideas come alive is something you know, in cyberspace we can do in the curriculum that's, you know, you can't can't do that in civil engineering probably. No, no, you can't just build bridges all over Yeah. Well, you so, can, but, but it's hard. So it's, a, and it's, so it's this incredibly exciting, stimulating uh, opportunity that we can do as educators. Yeah, I, I think Dave's right. I mean, computing is about building things. Mm -hmm. I think we teach principles, right? We teach students how to use abstraction so that mm -hmm. we can build really complex software systems. Right. I mean, the scale of the software systems we build now is phenomenal. If you tried to do that 30 years ago, we didn't have the tools to do it. So we try to teach them principles of abstraction, organization, so that they can do that. How to, how to test a large piece of software, because mm -hmm. certainly a lot of software that gets released is buggy. Um, we teach them principles of security so that they understand issues of security and privacy, which has become certainly mm -hmm. vastly more yeah, important we'll in the last few years. And, and what are the challenges now facing teaching from your perspective? The number, the popularity. <laughs> the popularity, it's, uh, well, at Stanford now, it's the number one major, right? It's the number one major for women even mm -hmm. right now, which we'll just happened that. this past year, which is amazing, mm -hmm. amazing. Yeah, so it, in Berkeley, the, the classes, you know, we have, I didn't know we could handle four-digit class sizes. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know the system would work, but we have introductory courses in computer science with more than 1,000 students. So students are voting with their feet. And this is happening at campuses across the country. It's not right. just... Not just but not discussion. enough. But there's not enough. Well, uh, we're, our universities are trying to figure out how to scale yeah. to everybody, right? We've got to scale. We've got to figure out how to hire faculty. You know, it's not just at the big-name places. It's the entire hierarchy that's got to figure right. out how to build people. Right. When we get back, we're going to talk about that more, especially about diversity and trying to figure out who's going to be designing the future, because I don't know if you're going to continue, but maybe you will, <laughs> um, and where it's going. When we get back from a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be back with Alphabet Chairman John Hennessy and Google Distinguished Engineer, or your Distinguished Engineer, Dave Patterson, after this. Today's show is brought to you by HBO. Silicon Valley is back for another season and another pivot. This time, founder Richard Hendricks turns his sights on launching a decentralized internet. With so much focus on data tracking and privacy on the web, this latest turn of events feels eerily relevant. But this should come as no surprise. The comedy has made a name for itself with two real jokes about startup culture. It's the show's attention to detail that feeds the comedy. Every reference is on point, not to mention the fantastic Emmy award-winning cameos from people like me. I'm still waiting for that Emmy, but I really enjoyed being on it, including giving Gavin Belson advice on how to run Hooli. Get new episodes of Silicon Valley Sundays at 10 p.m. on HBO. Today's show is brought to you by Betterment. It's tax season, which means it's a great time to think about your finances as a whole. Are you ready for the deadlines coming your way? Are you saving as much on taxes as possible? And are there any accounts that could be working harder for you? Maybe you have an old 401k sitting around. High fees on that account can drain your savings. According to an independent study, rolling over to a Betterment IRA could mean 60% lower fees. Betterment is a modern solution to an age-old problem, how to save for a better retirement. Investing involves risk. But licensed experts at Betterment will help you develop a personalized plan to make sure you have the retirement you deserve. Find out today if you're on track to hit your savings and investing goals. And when you need it, Betterment has the tools and guidance to help you get on track. Recode Decode listeners can get up to one year managed free. 
For more information, visit betterment.com slash decode. That's betterment.com slash decode. We're back with Alphabet Chairman John Hennessy, who's also a kind of a good academic, apparently, <laughs> and Google Distinguished Engineer Dave Patterson, who apparently teaches people some things. Um, they won the Turing Prize. What is the winning of the Turing Prize? You've had a massive, is it just a banquet? What, what happens? I mean, what happens? Yeah, what is it? Explain well, it, what it right is. Right here in San Francisco, at, yeah. I think at the Palace Hotel, yeah. on June 23rd, there'll yeah. be a ceremony where uh, they'll have us come on the stage, show a video, and hand us a check. Yeah, good, good. <laughs> yeah, and we and it's tradition that the Turing Award winners prepare a lecture mm -hmm. uh, talking about the state of the field, where it's going, right. what's happening. Give me a little preview, both of you. What's the state of the field, Dave? Uh, well, John? okay. Well, we've collaborated on, we're going to share the talk since we co-author things. Mm -hmm. uh, the title is A New Golden Age for oh. Computer Architecture. Um, and I think the four things that we think are part of this golden age are what is called today's domain-specific architectures, which are like uh, Google's uh, TPU. You know what that is? The for, uh, hardware for deep learning, yes. hardware for machine learning. Security, you know, security is embarrassing. Yes. You know, uh, I, we think hardware people need to, rise to the challenge and do we something do. about it. There's this idea of an open, and I talked about these vocabularies being, there's the idea of an open vocabulary. Mm -hmm. There's something called RISC-V, which is an attempt to, it's to be like the Linux of microprocessors, is an open thing that anyone can build. And then finally, uh, there's a thing called agile hardware development, making it a lot easier yes. to build. So those, we think those four things are gonna lead to the, another golden age in computer architecture. And wait, when you say golden age, John, what does that mean? What do you, well, well, it's I been think kind Cara, of golden. It's it, been it, kind it, of golden over the it past was, 20 years. It, it was for quite some like time. The last few years, right. there's been a slowdown. I mean, uh, we talk about the end of Moore's Law, right? right. Really the slowdown of Moore's Law. Right. Uh, we also talk about another uh, technology doubling, problem. Right? Yeah, it's a doubling every yeah. few years, and that's yeah. kind of now it's leveled doubling, off. doubling <laughs> every seven years or eight right. years, years or 10 years. So too long, um, not enough. Yeah. And then there's another, another problem that we call the failure of Dennard scaling. So Dennard was the guy who invented DRAMs, the mm -hmm. one transistor DRAM. He made an observation that as, um, as you got more transistors, the power didn't go up. So you could actually do more computing for the same amount of energy. And that actually broke down. And so now the problem is, I mean, you look at a modern microprocessor from Intel, it, it slows this clock right down. It shuts itself off mm -hmm. because otherwise it's going to burn up. Right. So that's a, a, a challenge that we have to face as well. And I think the way to solve these problems is to rethink the way you design computers, again. which is why Dave and I think, once again, it's a new golden right. age. So where exactly. do you imagine that rethinking happening? Are there any directions that you you're... Mean, you mean where Yeah, how does world, it happen? Or? How does it occur? Well, and where in the world? Because it may not be here. Well, that's why, uh, I mean, we're researchers, right? And we think uh, when it's unclear what to do, those are great times for researchers when there's mm -hmm. new challenges and, you know, Intel doesn't know what to do, ARM doesn't know what to do. That's a fantastic time to be a researcher in computer architecture because good ideas can win, right? Uh, when, when it's pretty, uh, th I think maybe 10 or 20 years ago, it got kind of dull because uh, didn't any idea you had Intel would still go ahead and they knew how to make a lot of money. Just it'd be faster this year. Now it's uh, really unclear. So, uh, rise of AI. I mean, that's mm -hmm. the yeah. rise we'll of talk machine about learning. That a bit. That's a that. big piece of it because they're incredibly computationally intensive right. tasks, right? And that was one of the stumbling blocks we had to overcome. Uh, in order to get machine learning to work, we had to throw a thousand times more right. hardware power than we thought we had to throw at the problem. And all of a sudden, you've got these machines doing these comparatively special purpose tasks, but very different than traditional general purpose computers. So you can rethink, how do you design a machine to do that function very fast? Mm -hmm. Virtual and, reality, and augmented reality, you can think about all these All the different things that hang off of it. Do you imagine that you, we need a breakthrough to get to that, correct, from what I understand? And especially with the massive amounts well, of data that is that are pouring uh, in. Yeah, well, we need a we need to do things differently. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think uh, researchers love it when we have to do things differently. Yes, we need uh, in, as innovative ideas as you know maybe the risk ideas were. Yeah, it's a discontinuity. So what, discontinuity. is there something you've heard recently that's been like, well, is well it, no, I've heard all kinds of like living computers. It, oh, no, I don't know. It needs to be that exotic. Right. It's, uh, you know, transistors are pretty, silicon transistors are pretty amazing technologies, even if it's slowing down. And they are going to get a little better, but we've been like it's like building 
we're, we want to build a building in a different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, we don't necessarily have to get rid of bricks. I see. Good uh, point. That's a fair and, point. Know, so, uh, but we've, in the past, it's always been a bad idea to do special purpose architectures. Right. That mm-hmm. was like, you know, the kiss of death. Because, you, know, you know, you do all that energy and then how many are you going to sell? How many people? Mm-hmm. But now we have no choice with this ending of Morse Law and Denard scaling. There's no other choice. We have to do special purpose architectures. And so the excitement of machine learning is it's kind of a narrow but general purpose a technology. Mm-hmm. And we have to figure out how to build, you know, machines for those. And the, the companies critical to this are Google. Well, uh, well uh, NVIDIA is kind NVIDIA. of the, NVIDIA. Is, yep. NVIDIA is the reigning champion. Jensen, right? really that's, is. that's where people go. Uh, Google, you know, uh, I helped write papers about the TPU, and yeah. the TPU, uh, that first generation, I think pretty successful. It was, you know, at a time in normal computing, if you're like twice as fast, you know, you kill everybody in the marketplace. We said that uh, the TPU was like 30 to 80 times better, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that's kind of amazing numbers, but because it's a new area and it does that one thing well, you can get these fantastic advantages. But I think you'll see all the, I think Apple, Amazon, Facebook will all, Microsoft will, are all investing in this technology because it appears the range of applicability for deep learning um, is quite broad mm-hmm. on very complex tasks right. that traditionally computers have not been able, to, been do able well. to do. Well, explain one of those to give an example for regular. Uh, image recognition is right. probably the best one. It's yeah. the one we can, uh, now we, we can have a program which is better at classifying breeds of dogs and cats than anybody but an AKC certified master, right. um, which is absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. And self-driving cars, I mean, they really depend on this absolutely. ability to interpret scenes which are not easy to interpret for right. computers. And then learn it again and again. And learn it again and again. Right. How do you make, uh, you know, I don't want to dumb down this because you're both so highly intelligent, but the idea that it's dangerous, that these these new types the, of the, computing. You mean uh, the, the Elon the, argument, the Stephen That AI Hawking. itself. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's not so much the hardware we're building, but, mm-hmm. you know, the technology itself. Yeah, I think uh, there's this argument that other fields have uh, done a better job of when we get to these cultural uh, issues like uh, physicists and atomic energy and biology right. and you know dangerous That's what I'm bugs, thinking. yeah, I I would say I hang out with a lot of machine learning people. I know they care desperately about fairness, which is one of the criticisms that you hear about machine learning. Sure, they want they get, all tend to look the same. Sorry, like you guys, yeah. <laughs> like uh, well, younger versions of you guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, at least at least at Google, there's women. Yeah, <laughs> yeah women too. Uh, and so I, you know, I, one of my colleagues at Berkeley is writing a book about fairness. So they seem to be taking these issues on. Mm-hmm. Um, but right now, you know, there's big holes in the technology or, or, and if we don't work on them, you know, bad things could happen. Yeah. Well, and I think there's a concern that humans will be removed from the loop in all these cases. Sure. And particularly um, if the technology were to be used for offensive war fighting or something mm-hmm. like that. I mean, I think there, is, there are real dangers that we need to worry about. Um, it's, you, you have a technology. I mean, think about medical technology. It has both good uses and dangerous right. uses as well. It's the same thing here. Appropriately use the technology we find. Mm-hmm. Um, maliciously used, it'll be dangerous. Right. Do they, does Silicon Valley understand the malicious uses as well? I mean, just we just got off a week of hearings of Facebook where... Mark Zuckerberg was essentially lauded because he was able to wear a suit and not sweat, <laughs> you know, pretty much. But he didn't say much. And there's some a lot of questions about the responsibility of tech companies. I'm not using just Mark because it's a, a general attitude in Silicon Valley. Of, well, if I can speak as a professor, yeah, yeah. as opposed, you know, I just, the fact that they let somebody doing an app access mm-hmm. to all tens of millions of people's data, that's kind of irresponsible. That's right? bad management. That's yeah, what I called it. Yeah, I mean, that, I... I, did they not realize that? Well, that's what I'm talking about. You know, where they is the reason they didn't realize that they're making money. Yeah, it just it some there was just a real failure there, and it it's a it's a black mark for everybody. Well, I think the real danger here is a breakdown in trust mm-hmm. because we we trust companies. We give them our data. We give them they have our email. Sure. The, you know, we trust them. They we trust Google to do a search properly. Mm-hmm. If we lose that trust element then the tech sector will be abandoned by people. And, right. and it's, whether it's information security, it's accuracy of data, it's accuracy of news feeds, all it's those use things. use of data. Use Especially of data. with these new computer architectures, which yep. will be 
much more embedded and much smarter, correct? I mean, correct. From, correct. Do you think the the government understands that correctly? I mean, you got your first funding from DARPA. I mean, is that is there still that commitment from government to really understand and discern it, or are you worried about? I think certainly government wants to understand the technology and how to use it. Mm-hmm. I think the problem becomes when they they want to legislate. Mm-hmm. They have a hard time writing legislation that keeps up with technology. Mm-hmm. Look at look at our copyright law. Mm-hmm. It's stuck in the 1700s, mm-hmm. and we haven't been able to make the v- vital changes. Um, and I think that's what we have to worry about. How do we craft regulations? If we're going to have regulations, how do we craft regulations that don't inhibit innovation? So as we move into this new era of architecture, which I think is very clear, as you're saying, it seems as if we're on the cusp of another innovation in computer architecture. Who should be responsible for that? Is there, is it should be the industry? It should be who, is it academia? Is it government? Um, what was interesting struck me last week from the hearings is the, the, the congressman or the senators kept asking Mark what regulation he'd like, which I thought was fascinating. <laughs> and, but again, why they, of course, why would they know any, regu- what, why would they know what to do at all? Because um, they hardly understood terms of service. Well, I suppose given the importance of technology to society, mm-hmm. it's going to have to be all three parties coming together, right? Mm-hmm. And it's difficult. That's probably a very difficult proposition to and get citizens. government to work with. And citizens, right? And the uh, academia can play a part of bringing in knowledge and expertise without necessarily a bias of one form or another and, and help chart that. But it's not going to be easy to chart, Kara. I think it's going to be hard. Mm-hmm. I think most Americans probably haven't thought about, okay, how much privacy am I willing to give up in exchange for what? Right. They really haven't thought about the boundaries. Of course, they all use credit cards. Right. And if you don't think everybody who touches that credit card is collecting information, you're being naive. No, not at all. But I think some of the technologies that are showing up now are, are quite different from the last 10 years. I mean, some of them, I mean, a cell phone is one thing, but self-driving cars, automation, AI, uh, robotics, for example. Well, yeah, but I mean, I think self-driving cars is something that computer scientists have been talking about for a while. Yes, As they we, have. We think this is, I mean, this will be... If it really works, this will be something we'll brag about forever. I mean, um, 1.2 million people die every year. Mm -hmm. There's incredible billions of damages. If we could energy inefficiency, it goes on. Uh, Yeah, if if we could cut back, could we save a million lives a year with you know with advanced technology? We could, right? And uh, anybody's knows somebody who's been one of these terrible accidents changes their lives forever. We could we could make this, you know, over time much rarer event. And that would be one of the things we'd brag about like the internet, right? Right. So, but, but in that vein, and again, I'm not trying to be a Luddite in this area, do you think they think enough about jobs, the impact of jobs, the impact of, uh, do you think Silicon Valley is, to me is matured enough um, where they, they, there is this, when you interview certain people, like I had Sundar and uh, Shrep from, uh, from Facebook and others, talk, and it was the same year we had Elon, he was talking about Terminator-like kind of outcomes, essentially. Um, and they were talking about sort of the happy, shiny future. But what I do get a sense of is that uh, no, nobody really does under, I think I did an interview with Mark Andreessen last year where he talked about that it was the farming to manufacturing shift. It was a similar thing. And I kept saying, well, there was a lot of social unrest. There was a lot of populism. There was, and that took 70 years. This is a very compressed time period. Who has the ethical underpinnings? when? Because some of these technologies are quite culturally changing, social changing, political, all this stuff. And I think a lot of these past elections have been about that, about fear of the future. Yeah, I, I think you're right, Karen. I think you're going to see disruption to white collar jobs, not mm-hmm. just blue yes, collar jobs. Yes, that's what I mean, yeah. it, high paying jobs. And I, I think the data that's out there shows that in the end, it'll lead to economic growth and new opportunities, but there'll be a disruption just as it was during the industrial revolution. And you're right that it's gonna happen much faster so we're going to have to adjust. Many jobs are going to be what they call de-skilled. Mm-hmm. So in other words, part of the skill set of the job will be taken over by the computer. And why shouldn't it be? Why like shouldn't you're it saying, be, right? Like you're saying, cars, why shouldn't it be safer? Why, why shouldn't should... it be, right? Right. So, but then obviously drivers are out of jobs then in that mm-hmm. setting. And how do, we, how do we recover that? How do we restructure? How do we re-educate people? 
uh, into new so is job yeah, settings. You, sh- you should probably interview Zundar again because yeah, that, I am. I'm, I'm going to be. This is one of his hobbies, uh, right. hobby horses, right? Uh, yeah. Is uh, is helping with technology and jobs. And there's yeah, I had him on a sh- an MSNBC show talking about. It. I'm going to bring yeah, him he, back he's, to he's, he's there's a bunch of programs that yeah. I yeah. read about. Yeah. So fortunately, you know. I'm glad I'm working at a place that seems to be taking this seriously. I'm, right. I worry about for my grandchildren, you know, about the jobs yeah. and stuff like that. So I'm going to finish up asking, what would you guys do now if you were, uh, I mean, you can do whatever you want. I don't think age is a hindrance in any way. But if you were starting out right now. As if I, a, we were young again? No, I'm old too. So, I mean, if you would pick anything and go anywhere right now, um, change everything. Is there one area of computing that you would focus on? <laughs> I, I think you we're, I think, restaurant? I don't uh, know. No, no, we're, we're, we're both optimists. Yeah. I mean, if if I was younger and had more energy, I would, this golden age sounds pretty good to me. Right. I think computer architects haven't been asked enough to do enough about security. Yeah. And it's, you know, for those of us in the industry, right, it's humiliating how bad security it is. is. It's, you know, it's not, I, I, I don't think it's necessary. And I think hardware, which does things, you know, every nanosecond, we should try to see if hardware can really make a difference. Right. So yeah, that's the one I'm, I agree. Uh, that's the one that I'm particularly interested in. And this, I think I talked about earlier with RISC Five, this open source instruction set. In the past, you know, we've had to wait for Intel. We have to beg Intel to make a change before we can do anything. Now we don't have to beg anybody. We can mm-hmm. jump in there, come up, try ideas, uh, put them online through these field programmable gate arrays, and see if they work. And not only that, you don't have to work for Intel or ARM. Anybody in the world can do this. So we could see this potentially rapid acceleration of innovation around security with architecture and uh, software systems. And, you know, we, I sir, we need to get better at this. And I can imagine this path working. And so, yeah, I, that's what, uh, I think that's a really exciting thing to work on. Yeah, I think it's an interesting time. Here's this whole new set of applications which consume enormous amounts of computer power and produce incredible results. We have to rethink both the hardware and the software systems that we used to build them because they're both changing. Um, We need to respond to these new kinds of applications and we need to change the way we design the machines. So that opens up opportunities for both software and hardware people. It's really a focus on Mm co-design. So you've got to bring these people together and get them to work together to do something innovative. And that's always an exciting time when that happens in a field. So John, you don't want to bring back Google Glass? Uh, try again. Do you know what? It's still a great concept. It's, there, exactly, it's, a great concept. The, it's exactly the right concept. Yeah, it's a I, great concept. We need the we need more killer apps um, besides face it's, recognition. It's, you know what? Do you remember, remember General Magic? There's a new movie coming out about yeah. General Magic. You know, it, well, it had the, it had an iPhone back then. Remember, there were a couple tries at PDAs before PDAs. Well, the General iPhone Magic was, broke and they were all, Magic, they all the worked there. All the people that later went on. Yeah, I think Google Glass is going to make a comeback. Yeah. I've decided it's like okay. the right concept, but the idea of something around your face and, yeah. and computing, and so that's just interesting to me. I would like you to invent that, please, if you okay. don't mind. Okay, I'll work on it. Anyway, he's, he's chair, so. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for coming, and congratulations on your award, uh, named for Alan Turing, who is another great engineer, and visionary, actually, about where computing was going. We've had a great interview with John Hennessy and Dave Patterson. They are really legends in the business and I hope you'll come back again and tell me where things are going in the future. Thanks for coming on the show. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find more episodes on Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcast or just visit recode.net slash podcast for more. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell other people about the show. This helps them discover great interviews like this one. Now that you're done with this, you should check out our other Recode Radio podcasts on Recode Media with Peter Kafka. You hear no-nonsense interviews with some of the smartest people in media and entertainment. I host Too Embarrassed to Ask, where we answer all of the questions about consumer tech and the week's news. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from all our live events by Recode, including the Code Conference, which is coming up, and Code Media. We've got an amazing lineup for that, so uh, be sure to tune in. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. Thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back with a bonus episode on Saturday. Tune in then. Today's show is brought to you by HBO. In a world of incessant data tracking, one tech startup is working to create a brand new internet, and that startup is Pied Piper. It's a totally decentralized, totally awesome, and too-good-to-be-true network, only on HBO's Silicon Valley. This tech could make the world a better place. Catch new episodes of Silicon Valley Sundays at 10 p.m. on HBO.